Hey, Blenders, it's the last show of the year, and in celebration, we are doing the top 10 lists from the Real Blend hosts. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 291 of Real Blend, the podcast that's ready to put an exclamation point on the year of 2023. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend and the co-host of the Real Blend podcast. And on this week's show, we are going through our top 10 movies of the year. We've had to make some difficult decisions, leave a few very worthy films on the honorable mention list, uh, and finally cement the 10 films that each of us individually uh, think made up the best things we saw in 2023. We're going to agree on a lot. We're going to disagree on a few, and we're going to get right into the lists in a hot minute. But first, let me introduce the boys, starting with my great friend, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, you are only allowed to have Oppenheimer in one slot. I'm sorry. It, it's not in my top 10, so we'll just, we'll just, we'll oh, just continue on. Great. Isn't that being like the greatest twist of all? He's like, you know, I rewatched it the 84th time, and that one really made me realize yeah. that I've been... A lot of questions. Yeah. Tell me you wouldn't be surprised if Kevin showed up and he said, I, I can't put it on a top 10. It's better than everything it's that's ever it's been better made. Than it it's one. not allowed to it's be on It's better than one. Uh, yeah. Well, Sean, I have a question for you, Sean. How do you Sir. decide each week who you're hmm. going to say hi to first, Jake, myself, or myself? completely random it is it is decided in the moment and it's legitimately just how how i'm looking at you two and deciding who i'm gonna go with i know he's lying he he usually goes with who he thinks looks more handsome today right um and i only say this because i know someone will do it i would like to task uh a a blender with going back and tallying up (laughs) who he says hi to first yeah I think I think it would be like a solid sixty-five percent, Kevin. We have to find out. We'll find out when they tally those up in twenty twenty-five when they finish that. <laughs> and you know what? If it's not a clean fifty-fifty, I'll be really upset. <laughs> I know. Sean likes his his numbers even. I do. I really do. Well, let me also introduce my great friend, great friend. Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Uh, how are you there, sir? Yeah, I was really worried as to how you were going to follow up uh, I know. Kevin because you're like, Kevin, my great friend. Also, Jake's here. I know. No, listen, if I've learned nothing else over the course of this show, it's how to massage egos. Uh, and, and <laughs> I mean, between wrangle. having two actual sons and two egotistical television personality <laughs> co-hosts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, know how to, you know how to handle it. And the true monster behind the scenes, Gabe Kovach, who's cracking the whip and keeping things moving. Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Bringing the year to a close in a big way. These are one of oh. my favorite ones of the year. The beginning and end of the year are some of the most fun we have because we get to do all these. Which is kind of sad because we, it means that the most fun we have are like within two weeks of each other. No, not the only fun, but just some <laughs> of the, some of the most fun. Some I will say I, I, I really enjoyed last week's episode. If people can go back and take a listen to that episode, this or that. Um, I'm hoping mm. we can do more games like that uh, yeah. in the show in 2024 um, because I feel like they, people respond a lot to those. Uh, also, Sean, one that one time on your introduction, you should go to Gabe first just Oof. to throw us off completely or, or really, really blow people's minds. <laughs> introduce yourself. Well, <laughs> and then the, he always does. I do. Yeah, do. I do. Yeah, I mean, okay, so let's, let's let's really clarify something for a second. Sean introduces himself. That's true. Before he introduces yeah. anyone. Yeah, I think um, largely <laughs> the people understand this is my show. <laughs> true. Oh, yeah. And I ever since I you and George guys. Clooney bonded over Kentucky. Yeah. Holy God. Yeah. Did that did go Clo- wild? Did Clooney send you that shirt? 
Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he sent me a whole box of them, his <laughs> leftovers. Uh, hello, if you're watching to see what kind of shirt that I'm wearing, it's another UK shirt. Um, we're on YouTube. Thank you very much for joining us. We are steadily gaining subscribers and very thankful for the people who come to check us out. Uh, make sure you hit subscribe, turn on your notifications, share the channel with a movie-loving friend. It is youtube.com backslash Podcast. Of course, you can also listen to us in an audio format everywhere you get your podcast needs met. And if you would like to sign up for Real Blend Premium, it will get you an ad-free version of the show and a newsletter uh, from myself that you can enjoy every other Friday. If you want to find out how to sign up for Real Blend Premium, you can check the description for information on where to sign up. To Kevin's point, um, whenever we play a really fun game like that, we'll always get comments from people who are like, oh, I missed the the games that you guys used to play on premium. So I, we should make a little effort to bring back a yeah. few more of the games in 2024. Maybe, you know, less interviews. That's more what games. So, yeah, that's what <laughs> let, the, let that be a lesson <laughs> to you in Hollywood. Start turning us down more. Because our show's better without you. (laughs) Careful. Careful what you wish for. That's true. They do. All right. So it's the end of the year. We have been talking about a ton of films all year. If you guys have been following the show fairly religiously, we know a lot of you guys out there do listen on a weekly basis. We thank you very much. You could probably guess where where we're going in a couple of directions. But I will say, I don't know about you two, um, but I rewatched a lot of stuff for consideration, which was tough because at this end of year, this crunch to get to a lot of the newer titles, uh, Iron Claw, um, Maestro for me, I, had to, I hadn't seen yet. Like I, I wanted all those to be in consideration, but at the same time, I had a bunch of movies that fell in that six to 10 range. And I wanted to rewatch those as well, too, to see if they were going to stay in, or where they'd land in the six to 10. And then even I think Jake and I were having this conversation as well, too. Nine and ten felt like they were like they're the worst ten spots movies to are going to fit there. Yeah. So, Jakey, talk a bit about wrestling with that. Yeah, I, I hate. You know, I always tell people, you know, one through eight is fine. Like you, you probably are hitting December, knowing what at least your one through five are. Uh, I, I hate nine and ten spots nine and ten because they are arbitrary. They are a snapshot of a moment. Um, you know, I. I, I even I hate that like we're leading off with 10 right now because I feel like I'm I'm going to toss out a movie and go like this one question mark and know <laughs> that that by the end of the show, I'm probably going to want to change it or, you know, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and, and hate myself that, that it's chiseled in stone because I should have put something from my honorable mentions or or. But, you know, it just it is what it is. And, and you know, we, we play a, a really fun game where we go back and look at our top tens sometime. And it's a nice reminder that like. It's not it's not set in stone. There's no one out there with like a chisel and a rock, you know, solidifying this and you have to live by it for the rest of your life. All it is is a Polaroid of of how you're feeling on this random day at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, so don't you know, don't don't please don't. And and, and again, like a movie that doesn't make our top 10. And I cannot emphasize this enough. We love and I'm worthless. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Well, we love more than 10 movies every year. The the idea that something doesn't make our top 10 means that we either didn't see it or don't like it is ridiculous. There are a lot of movies that I love from the bottom of my heart that I just didn't have room for or didn't put it on for for this reason or that reason. Um, So uh, these are fun. They're fun to do. They're they're fun, you know, to to kind of rile up the discourse amongst the four of us. But I beg you to not like don't don't take them too seriously, please. (laughs) 
Uh, I will note that my top 10 is chiseled this year in uh, Emma Stone. So, ah, I see what you're doing there. That was funny. Thank you very much. All right, let's get this. Uh, <laughs> let's get this underway. Uh, we are going to go in a uh, snake draft format for people oh, who love, love to play fantasy football. Uh, we're going to go uh, from really 10 quick, to well, 1. Like fantasy football, me and Gabe, semifinals. Woo! Oh, it makes no sense that I'm in a semifinals. <laughs> but yeah. I, Wait, did I, one I, of you guys have Drew Locke or something on your team or something? No. Because no. <laughs> that, dude, I was, that was one of. But we're recording this on Wednesday, but if anybody hasn't seen the Monday Night Football game where Drew Locke came back and beat the Eagles, it's it's one of the most one of the one of the best drives I've ever seen. It's an it's like a it's a legacy drive from what I've been told. It's an amazing. Drive. To, my starting quarterback is actually Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I have to say, it's before funny. we get into the top, the problem tens, is he always throws the ball the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's um, good. F- football Kevin is my favorite character. From I love Kevin. <laughs> football Kevin is nuts. I love you it. guys. I'm telling you all right now, like I, this Super Bowl this year, it's going to be Brock Purdy versus Tua. I want to watch it at your 49ers. house. I just want to come to your down. apartment and watch it at your house. I want to meet Mike McDaniel. If anybody out there listening to our show knows who Mike McDaniel or knows him. Yeah. I would cry if I met Mike McDaniel. That guy is happen. amazing. I think he's amazing. I love <laughs> I watching him. Cry. I All love right. Mike McDaniel or Mahomes. Oh, so here's how it goes. Mahomes. For people who have not uh, listened to the top 10 version of the show before, uh, we're going to go from 10 to 1. We are going to uh, list our titles, uh, each of us individually in order from uh, we'll all do 10, we'll all do nine. And just so you guys know, if if someone lists a title uh, early on and it's something that we all have or one of us has further up, we will hold it at that point. And then we will go into a deeper discussion when the title is mentioned at its highest point on the list. So if you hear us uh, mention something like poor things um, and then we're like, oh, and we skip right over it. That's because we're going to discuss it a little bit later on in the show. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to start with Jake Hamilton, who's going to give us his number 10, the the coveted circled in ink number 10 (laughs) pick for 2023. Um, for my number 10 in true, do not chisel this in stone fashion. Uh, my number 10 is air. Um, and the, you know, it's, it's a movie that I really loved whenever I saw it back in, what was it? Late March, early April. And Mm -hmm. kind of like fell in love with it. I, I, I thought it was the perfect example of this trend that I was hating, which is like the true story of the, you know, these products that are coming out, but I Mm -hmm. thought it was the best example of what that sort of newfound subgenre could be. I thought it was just a really sharp script, really tight direction by Ben Affleck, uh, an ensemble cast. I'm a little surprised Viola Davis isn't a little bit more in the supporting actress conversation. Um, I thought she was incredible. Um, one, one of two amazing Matt Damon performances this year. Uh, I just really love this ensemble. I love this story. I, you know, it was a story that I didn't realize could be as interesting as it was. And, uh, you know, as I revisited it uh, toward the end of the year, I was kind of reminded of like, oh, that's right. Like, I do love this movie. And, and you know, Sean, to Sean's point, the that period of time of revisiting can be really important because doing so with air, uh, sort of just putting it back on just kind of brought me to sort of this comfort of like, oh, that's right. Like, Oh, this was great. I really do love this. And I and I kind of hate that new trend of those product movies. But this, I think, is the best that that uh, flash in the pan subgenre is going to be. 
Okay. Also, shout out to Robert Richardson who yeah. shot the hell out of that film. Shot the hell out of it. Um, it's, a real, it's a really good pick. I, I loved Air. It's not on my list. And it's not on Sean's list. From what, obviously, from the game we're playing, but um, it is. It's really great. I do. I highly recommend seeing it. And you're right. Damon is outstanding in it. It's great. I couldn't get past the fact that it just felt like a commercial. It just really? felt like a commercial for Nike. I didn't feel that at all. Really? Yeah, no. I don't know why. I, I was late to the game with it. I watched it finally on, on Amazon, and I was like, I don't That's know. That's so interesting, because like I felt like it was like a two-hour example of Nike being like, yeah, for a long time, we didn't know what we were doing. Sean mm-hmm. accidentally just watched the uh, Michael Jordan Bugs Bunny commercial on <laughs> repeat for two Sean hours. Sean just watched yeah. like Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He watched Air <laughs> He's like, I don't get it. So Air <laughs> would have been his number one. Yeah. <laughs> Who's to say it isn't? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'm next. Uh, and I get to talk about my number 10. Uh, Kevin's next. Kevin's next. Sorry. Hey, Kevin's next. And he gets to talk go. about his number 10. <laughs> Kevin, you well. are up. <laughs> yeah. The number 10 slot was hard for me. That was the hardest slot. Always uh, is. To the point you guys are making. And mm-hmm. one of my honorable mentions, which we'll get to later, um, was in this slot until this morning. Um, and so. I, I went number 10 with the creator. Um, is that on anybody else's list? It is not. Okay. You're free to talk uh, about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, first of all, shout out to Gareth Edwards who directed the hell out of that film. Another movie that, uh, in my opinion, just it, it, there's so much game changing material in this movie, the way it was shot using essentially uh, a consumer camera from, you know, I don't really remember the name of the exact camera, but it was definitely a lower grade camera that is generally not used in filmmaking. And Oren Soffer, um, who shot this movie, uh, it was a protege of Greg Fraser, who ended up doing obviously Dune and all those incredible work that he's done with the Batman Um this movie obviously came out at a very timely mo- moment, right, with the AI aspect of it and mm-hmm. Gareth Edwards making a film about AI and, and the human connection and kind of what it means to be human. And I thought John David Washington was outstanding. I think the cinematography in this film is remarkable, knowing kind of the budgetary aspect of it. The aspect ratio is very unique. I remember seeing it in IMAX and I said this when we reviewed it, but it's a it's a very wide aspect ratio. And I was I was wondering why they were even releasing it in IMAX, because so much of the screen was going to be black on the top and the bottom um, with the very, very wide uh, aspect ratio. But there was so much information in every frame and and Hans Zimmer Hans Zimmer did the score I just I love that film that's my number 10 of the year and uh I'm proud that it's in that slot I and I I really think Gareth Edwards uh deserved better on that movie I know it didn't do well and I hope people find it later and in the discussion we had on Real Blend with Jake and I and Gareth we talked about like the Blade Runner comparison and how that movie didn't do well when it first came out and uh, I just I, I hope this movie finds an audience it's great um my number 10, very similar to you guys, could have been a dozen titles. Um, and ultimately, in the back of my mind, I thought a lot about when the this and that happens. Um, I don't want to hear a title and think like, huh? like, I really want to be proud of the title that I chose. Um, so I went with a title that probably not a lot of people have seen. I'll treat this as a recommendation. Uh, this is Nicole Hall of Center's uh, You Hurt My Feelings with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It's just such an incredible script and performance. It's a great movie. I saw it by one of the funniest people on the planet today. Um, for people who don't know the premise, Julia Dreyfus is an author. Uh, her second book is coming out. She doesn't necessarily believe in it 100%. She's dying for feedback from a lot of different people. She overhears her husband candidly telling one of his best friends that he didn't really like it all that much. 
That's all it is. It's her hearing blunt feedback from her husband indirectly. And it's her sort of spiraling out of control uh, with that knowledge. And it's done in a way that only sort of Julia Louis-Dreyfus could do, uh, making it very human um, and extremely relatable. And maybe because I've written a couple of books. I don't know if you guys know this, but I've written a few books. Um, and feedback is something that you crave. Are you and- confusing that with having read books? No, no, I, I've done that also, uh, but, uh, but I just love her. I, and this is one of the ones I kind of revisited and I was like, is it really as strong as I remember? And it, it is. It's just terrific. Um, so give that a chance. It's called You Hurt My Feelings. And I loved it so very, very much. Now, snake draft means that I get to go next. Correct, Gabriel? OK, yes. but this is one we're going to hold because this title will be uh, discussed later on the list at number nine. Yes, Kev. I'm, I'm not familiar with the term snake draft. What does that mean? Okay. Well, why, why so is Sean we go, going again is the question. We I'm go asking. Jake, you, me, and then me, oh. you, Jake, and then Jake, oh. you, me, and then me, you, Jake. Like that. And, okay. and for the future, if I ever convince you to play fantasy football, the reason he made the re- fantasy football reference is because when you draft in fantasy football, that's how you draft to make it fair oh. for everybody. So the okay. guy who drafts 12th doesn't have to wait 12 more rounds to get someone. He gets the 12th and the 13th pick understood okay go ahead and, and it's like a snake if a snake was laying in the ground it would okay. go back and forth like this Thanks. there you go thank you for See? explaining i didn't know so my number nine is yorgos lanthimos's poor things something we'll discuss a little bit later on kevin's number nine however is a uh, a movie that didn't show up in anybody else's list so, really this is not on anybody's list kev you get to talk about it oh i love this movie uh mine's the the latest indiana jones film dial of mm. destiny um I loved this film. It was my favorite film of the year when I first saw it. Uh, And I don't really, you know, I understand people's criticisms with it. Listen, at the end of the day, I don't think the de-aging aspect of it really looked super great. Um, It looked amazing in still shots or like in the trailer. But when when you get into the film and he and he starts to speak, it's a little it's a little uh, it's a little alarming or a little uh, disorienting. Um, But that's funny because it works sometimes and then it doesn't. I I rewatched it recently and I felt that sometimes I was like, oh, that looks great. Yeah. And then a lot, a lot at the beginning early on, it was like, that doesn't look good. You know, that sequence is long. That sequence is over 20 minutes, which I think justifies them going that route. Cause I was like, oh, it's very much a large part of it. But that's actually my favorite part of the movie. It's yeah, great. so yeah. Um, I'm going to dive just slightly into some spoiler territory here, just as a warning for audiences out there. Um, I think the ending of this film, to me, gave me such a comfort for the character that I had been longing for for years. I mean, the original trilogy is, you know, is still an absolute masterpiece. I I'm, I, I always favored Last Crusade because I just love the father-son dynamic with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. Um, True, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, you know, the 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 fourth one, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, you can we can talk about how bad that was or how good it was, but we've already gone down that route. But the fifth one to me was a was kind of a redemption um, of the fourth one, in my personal opinion. It it, it brought back the feeling I had watching Indiana Jones as a kid. Um, but for people who have seen it, the end of the film is to me the the most beautiful arc that they could have given Indy um, the idea that he's so passionate about what he does. And then for him to go back in time to a point in history and be there physically on the ground for a moment that he studied for years and years to come face to face with someone mm-hmm. that with history that he studied for years, it's mind blowing. Um, and there's something about Harrison Ford's eyes in that sequence. It's just beautiful to me. The entire ending 
Um, I just thought it was beautiful. I loved how it concluded. I love how the characters concluded. I love the references back to the original Indiana Jones and the quotes and, th- and you know, to me, it's just a really beautiful full circle for the character. I thought Mangold I wish he got really- to stay, Kev. Don't you wish he got to stay? I, I know because I'm glad that he got his ending scene um and i love with the Marian. last shot yeah the, mm. the scene with marion is really beautiful like that's the moment where he's doing about the like i'm hurting here and here yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and and but I you're right that was about a- Har- harrison's eyes when he's in uh, t- uh t- i think it's 2012 bc his eyes are saying i want to stay here as a mm. character i want to be in this world. but isn't the the emotional arc though is if he he's staying there to escape the loss of the present, yeah. but him yes. having to come back, he gets his family back. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And yes. it's the more true and emotional ending. I, think. I understand. And the ending that. is amazing. And I, I, I know we have to move on, but I, I love that film. I know it wasn't super well received, um, but I, I was over the moon about it. I just, to me, that ending is exactly the ending that I was hoping for subconsciously the whole time. I want to have him meet history is everything. Yeah. It's the whole, go back and watch Raiders. It's the entire arc of the uh, of the character i thought mangold did a great job so that's my number that's really my number nine i i, I yeah. am with sean i would have loved for him to have stayed and uh i i think it would have been cool if the final shot of the movie were like a 30 year old indie like chiseling away dusting a rock off somewhere and all of a sudden he sees like he he discovers something and it's a fossilized not a it wouldn't be fossilized but like an old like his he basically finds himself like if he found like his fedora or something somewhere huh. i think would have been really cool i like um, that my number nine, as I have already forgotten it and I'm about to pull it up. Um, I also can't talk about it because like Sean, my number nine is poor things. OK, so you're not able to talk about it yet. And also your number eight, you can't my talk number about. eight. I can't talk about number eight. Not yet. Someone, someone no, has this higher. My number eight eventually is. Well, you know what's funny? I'm like I'm looking at like the rest of my movies. Though. I'm like these are going to be on their list too. Uh, my number eight is Barbie. Okay. All right. Yes, it's going to go higher. Uh, let's see. Kevin's <laughs> number eight uh, mm-hmm. is also a do not talk about <laughs> just yes. yet. So yeah, Kevin, what's your number eight? eight? Is uh, real blend guest Greta Gerwig's Barbie. <laughs> Oh, hey. there you go. All right. So, uh, so I have the same number nine as Sean and the same number eight as Kevin. Two yep. Barbies at number eight. My number eight, um, I have to hold also. Hey, this is a fun <laughs> We're game, isn't this it? Year. <laughs> uh, my number eight is Maestro by Bradley mm. Cooper. Yes. Um, which brings me to, oh, shoot. No, I'm writing these in the wrong order. Uh, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll just keep that there. Okay. My number eight is Maestro. My number seven I don't get to talk about either. (laughs) (laughs) This list sucks this year. Um, My number seven is The Killer. David Fincher's film with Michael Fassbender, uh, The Killer, which brings us now to Kevin's number seven. And guess what, Kev? You're allowed to talk about it. it. No, you're allowed to. Ah. You're you're allowed. This isn't part of my. I do love this element of it, too, when we get to a choice and then we realize that someone else hasn't chosen it. And then you're like, oh, I can actually I can talk. But then also there's a degree of like none of you guys liked it. Yeah. (laughs) So my number seven is uh, is a film that you both have already mentioned as your number nines. Correct. So that is uh, your uh, poor things. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, just, Am I allowed to say that? Like, I'm. I, I was surprised at how far down on my top ten it was. Um, I'm a little surprised how collectively far down it is on all of our top tens. Yeah, I, just, I guess so. There's just so much 
like yeah. this year that was great. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll just take this real quickly. We had Yorgos and Emma on the show. They were wonderful. Uh, this is a film. I, I can't believe how sweet this film ends up being <laughs> at the end. Um, as for as, as crazy and as wild as the film and the journey that it takes you on. I just found it to be such a sweet story about a just a family that had an odd circumstance. Um, and and I, know, I know I'm putting that lightly, but, it, you know, Yorgos is definitely a filmmaker that that goes places that we haven't seen in filmmaking, uh, the lobster and, you know, the killing of the sacred deer. And not that people haven't done things like that before, but he has a very specific voice um, pretty unique. and and very unique. And I, I think the favorite was excellent. I think this is his best movie. I really do. Um, I think it's shot immaculately. Like it's it's the every frame of this film, the, the depth and the world building, the way Yorgos explained how they shot this with the stages and like building these sets, it really is remarkable. Um, I love the score. But the last thing I'll say about this, my favorite thing about this film was just the sense of wonderment and, and curiosity of Bella, uh, the character that Emma Stone plays. For people who aren't familiar, she's basically experiencing the world and we're her. Um, and the movie does a really good job with that. And Willem Dafoe is amazing. Mark Ruffalo is amazing. So that's my number seven is well or things. And a big part of that is is Emma's performance, because yeah. I'm not saying that no one else could have done it, but there's so many ways that that character could go wrong, um, could be played uh, insensitively, potentially, um, or played for big laughs, potentially. And I'm not saying that, that Emma Stone doesn't get some comedic stuff out of Bella, but Bella, to me, is always a character that I emotionally invested in in her yeah. journey, no matter how many bizarre places that it goes to. And so we're going back and marveling at the things that she accomplishes, even in little scenes, like when she bellies up to a bar and tries alcohol for the first time. And we all know, like, oh, this is going to not end well for her, (laughs) basically. And that shot to her passed out on the floor, you know, drunk is is hysterical. Um, And to see her get more courage, you know, throughout and to realize how much she understands of the world. It's a remarkable performance. And so should she get a, a second Oscar for it. I've got no problems with that. Like mm. that that's an Oscar worthy performance in a very strong year. Uh so we'll see how that shakes out, but I mean that's she's so she's so tremendous. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you guys said. Um it's number 9 on my list, and I don't want to use the top 10 as an excuse to like point out things I don't that I didn't love about the movie, but I guess you know when factoring in why I put movies where uh, you know they are on the list or if they make the list at all there are a bunch of things for me and, and one of them is the the first time that I experienced the movie what was it like and the first time that, I mean I saw this in theaters it was I was just blown away I'd never seen anything like it like it before I looked at my girlfriend 15 minutes in and was like what the shit are we watching and then by the <laughs> end of it both of us were just dying laughing wiping tears from our eyes I yeah. will say that another big factor for me when crafting my top 10 is uh, like rewatchability I had some friends over um, and and they wanted to watch the, the screener. So we kind of all gathered in in our uh, basement and turned it on and everyone watched it. And I will say that, like, I wasn't as quite as enamored uh, the second time around. I was just sort of like, OK, like I feel like the for, for lack of a better word, like the shock value of what I was seeing, the the anomaly of all so many aspects, uh, you know, all, all of the like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. Well, I'd seen it before and it, it just didn't quite pack as much of a of a punch the second time, um, which is why it's placed a little bit lower on my list than I really thought it was going to be after the first time I saw it. First time you I know, saw it, I thought it was top five. We have that conversation a lot, though. And like, how many times is the movie supposed to work, especially one that has 
You're, you're not wrong, but the problem is, is that there are ones that do, you know, yeah. uh, when, you know, one of the reasons why uh, I put Top Gun Maverick uh, as number one mm-hmm. on my list last year is because I went and saw it at the theaters, I think five times. I think by the time it came out on digital, I had it on a loop in my background and, and there's something to say for that. Like, OK, is it as mm-hmm. is it a better film than everything everywhere all at once? No, it's probably not. But the fact is, when it comes down to like which one I personally would rather watch, it's Top Gun Maverick. And I think that there's there there should be some value in that. OK, mm. I say that. That's fair. Um, all right. Where are we at? We are at Jake Hamilton. Uh, he is giving his number seven and he My? is not able to talk about it. What? No. Someone Good. else has it on their top ten. It's higher. I'm both shocked and annoyed. Go ahead. What is it? Oh, it's talk to me. Oh, <laughs> I've oh, got wow. it. Wow. I've got it on my list. I thought I was. I, I was certain that that was going to be one that I was going to be able to talk about on my own. Well, I got it, Jake. And Ooh. and guess what? We're not talking about it for a while. <laughs> I can't oh, believe it's your number one for a while. Uh, that makes me which, so happy. Which brings us to Jakey's number six. My number six is John Wick Chapter Four. Oh. Oh. Okay. Not on and my list. Great choice. Yeah. yeah. No one else picked it. Terrific. It's, it's wow. one of my honorable mentions. Wow. It is one of my honorable mentions. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, uh, I couldn't shake that movie. I just thought it was one of the most beautifully crafted action films I've seen in a very long time. I just thought, you know, if we're really looking at the, uh, you know, the craft that goes into some of these movies, you know, like what, what Chad did as a director behind the camera on on John Wick Chapter Four is to me nothing short of astonishing. And you yeah. know, there are I know it's not the quote unquote awards type of movie that really gets recognition at the end of the year, but if we're really looking at what some of the things are required of a director to pull off certain aspects of a film, what he did in in that film is astonishing. And if we were being serious, should be like be considered when we're talking of like a best director sort of conversation, mm-hmm. um, I just thought it was, I mean, the cinematography to me is legitimately Oscar worthy. I wouldn't I actually wouldn't be surprised if we saw an Oscar nomination for cinematography for this. Um, I, I hope beyond hope that this is the last one. I know it's not going to be, but if John Wake chapter five does come to fruition, it will cheapen jo- that what some of the things that happened in John Wake chapter four. But mm-hmm. I just thought it was just an unbelievable top to bottom head to toe just ballet of badass that that is this this franchise that somehow keeps getting better and better and better i, I cannot remember the last time i put a number four on my top 10 list mm-hmm. yep no i agree it's it's really terrific That's you a don't great, like it's on your top 10 it's a great choice that is a great choice check um, out our interview with chad stelhasky by the yeah. way jake and jake and i did it uh back in when person the came out great film i saw it Three times. It was awesome. That's a great Kev, choice. What is your number six? I'm assuming we can't talk about it, but my number six is uh oh yeah, it's a little indie film. Um Oppenheimer. wait, no. <laughs> actually, no, my number six is a big one, actually. Wait, this is we can't talk about this one because I'm sure it's on y'all's lists. Uh this we is are holding it. Yes. Martin Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is Killers. my number six of the All year. Right. Kev, put a put a pin in that one. Uh, we will circle back around to Mr. Scorsese a little bit later on in the show, which brings you to my number six. And who boy, 
<clears throat> I had mentioned to you guys uh, in the text thread that there was a title that, upon rewatching it, jumped into my back into my top ten because it just makes me laugh so hard, uh, and it's like a, a warm comfort blanket that I just ooze back into, and it is Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, yes. number six. Just spectacular. Great choice. It, one of my yeah, one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies in years. And here's the thing. Here's the caveat. And I see Jake's face. If you're watching on YouTube, Jake did that movie. For, for Asteroid City. That movie. I cannot and, stand that movie. But I forget how you feel. Do you not like Wes Anderson movies in general? I, I like Wes Anderson before he started deciding he was only going to make Wes, quote unquote, Wes Anderson movies. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that's fair. Because I, I love Wes Anderson films i mean i i it's maybe you know what you're going to get every time you go into it and i do feel he is just plunging further and further into his own tone uh each time but i think it's i think it's magical like the minute i put that movie on and the minute we start to step into the world of it i just feel amazing um but on rewatch the the way that actors attack his dialogue and the timing when they get the timing down right and they're talking about such deep things like grief. There's a, a whole undercurrent of grief to Asteroid City that is shared between Jason Schwartzman um, and Tom Hanks and the burial of Jason Schwartzman's wife. Uh, there's this tremendous side character with uh, Scarlett Johansson playing a famous actress and how uh, self-absorbed she is <laughs> beyond everything that happens with the alien that comes down to take the asteroid back, <laughs> which makes me fall on the floor laughing <laughs> because it's this the way it's awful shot is so funny. motion yeah. alien. And later when you realize it is played by Jeff Goldblum, mm. it's just because then the framing of the, the play about the about Asteroid City and the actors who are playing actors. And then it gets to that scene where Jason Schwartzman confronts Margot Robbie, who is essentially was supposed to be playing his wife in the play. It's just brilliant. Yeah. It's so brilliant and it's so funny and it's just amazing. And I, I had seen it two other times because I watched it when it first came out and then I rewatched it again a little bit later on. I was like, do I really love this as much? And then I put it on this week and I was like, Oh, forget it. This thing's going high. I just, I love everything about it. It makes me happy every time I put it on. So at number six, I put asteroid city. Now at this point, Great uh, halfway through. Thank you very much. Kev. I'm a little surprised you didn't you didn't find room for it, Kev, because I know funny. you like it as well. Yeah, it's one of my it would be, if I had a top 15, that would be on there. It's That's actually one of my favorite since Moonrise Kingdom, my favorite Wes Anderson film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we're going to throw it to a break. Hey, we'll see you on the other side. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. 
If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. And we are back. We are heading into our top five of our individual lists. Um, as Gabe was telling us in the break, we've had a lot of holds. So now we're going to get a bunch of goes. We're going to get to talk about a lot of these things, starting with my number five, Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Um, I think it gets overshadowed because of the marketing hoopla around Barbenheimer of just how good this movie is. And so getting to revisit it outside of the the noise of the marketing push uh, was really great because I more appreciated things like Margot's tremendous performance, um, who, who once you realize the truth behind her character and the motivations behind her actions, uh, it opens up a completely different interpretation of the movie. Uh, the production values and Rodrigo Prieto's cinematography are impeccable. And just the balance of the screenplay, you know, uh, between broad, broad satire and and really deep emotional points that it's trying to make about uh, the power of this toy, you know, that it had on a generation of, of kids growing up and, and the right messages and the wrong messages that can be sent. Um, how hilarious Ryan Gosling is uh, and Simu Liu and all these other guys who are playing Ken's and it's just funny. It's just for like from start to finish, it's just funny. So uh, Barbie made it all up to number five for me. You guys had it uh, earlier. Let's see, you both had it at eight. So uh, Kev, where where you stand on on Greta's on Greta's comedy? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Rodrigo Prieto because he shot this and Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which couldn't be more <laughs> different. Um, but a remarkable cinematographer. Um, I mean, this movie is on my list because it's. I consider it to be one of the best films of the year and and uh, the opening 2001 Space Odyssey <laughs> montage or homage is just it, it makes me so happy that a billion dollars plus worth of movie tickets for people sitting in there watching a Kubrick homage to a movie that came out decades ago. Um, and with a I, Snyder hope, cut joke that just came like a right. roundhouse. To me. <laughs> you, Sean, I wish you could have seen, cause Kevin and I were sitting next to each other when we were at the junket seeing it, like the way Kevin and I looked at each other with a like, Oh my God, we cannot wait. Cause we looked at each other the exact same for the exact same reason, which was <laughs> wait till Sean hears this. I, I think we may even like specifically said like, okay, we can't tell Sean what that joke is, but yeah. I think we may have said, Sean, there's a joke for you. Yeah. In yes, Barbie. You told me that much. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's great. It's an amazing joke. Um, but like going back to the 2001 element, I just, my, my, my hope is that, and I'm, I'm assuming this happened. I obviously I don't have evidence of this, but I would imagine there were people who saw that, that maybe didn't know what that was or read up on what that was. Cause the scene works regardless. It's like, uh, like a Pixar movie, right? Like the adults get one message, the mm -hmm. kids get a different message. And then as you get older, you understand the other messages. So that scene works regardless if you know Kubrick's movie or not. Um, but I just love that a massive blockbuster opens up with that, giving that movie uh, life again. Not that it didn't have it, but it's just cool to see. Um, I think the the sets on this movie are amazing. If you have a chance to look up any of the behind the scenes or the BTS footage on this, the way they design those moments where they're transferring from the Barbie world to the real world and back, it's all it looks exactly on set the way it looks in the movie. They, they have these really, really cool shots and it's very elaborate. Um, and Gosling's amazing, obviously. And just shout out to America Ferreira 
um because her monologue to me is one of the my favorite monologue of the year um it's a monologue that uh i feel like is going to be life-changing for a lot of people just understanding uh what she was talking about and what that meant um it's not just great writing the actor brings that monologue to to a different level mm-hmm. um it's great great writing don't get me wrong but america's mo- delivery of that monologue is ridiculously great um i loved it i mean it's a great movie i have some issues with it sure i mean i have issues with any every movie basically because there's there's always flaws but i i i really enjoyed barbie and i thought it was really well made and i also has one of the best last lines and last scenes of the year as well jakey there's a barbie movie uh that is on all of our top 10 lists <laughs> It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My, I feel like I had such a, a weird journey with this movie because, you know, so much of seeing a movie is getting over what you think it was going to be or what it was supposed to be and accepting it for what it is. And I remember the first time I saw it, I remember thinking like, what what what, what yeah. Barbie movie is this? What? what, yeah, like, we didn't what, know. what yeah, I was like, who's who's going to like who's going to like this? That's not this is not. <laughs> and it really wasn't until I went back. Uh, and saw it a second time and took uh, my girlfriend, her mother, her niece, her daughter, different generations of women and me and sat there and was able to kind of experience the movie through them and hear what they were laughing at and, and hear what they were talking about and what they responded to when the movie was over that made me sort of go. OK, I, I like like dumb on me for going in there with this perception of what I thought this movie needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of sort of allowing myself to just embrace what it was, uh, you know, I, I went in with like a mental block and, and really sort of getting the chance to see it again. And then more on, on home video. I think it has a huge rewatchability factor mm-hmm. has really made me appreciate just the genius of the screenplay, so many of, of the points that, that they drive home. It's so interesting that so many of the points that like drive uh, people crazy are I, I don't really understand. Like, I don't like like I don't like the type of man it's making fun of by making fun of Ken. It's like, well, that type of guy deserves to be made fun of. I don't understand why that's he's not making fun of all men. Um, you know, Alan but, is but great. Ken is, but Ken is also very redeemable. Like, like yes. he gets lines like when I found out Patriot was about horses, I kind of I kind of lost interest. You know, like he, he gets to be innocent, too. Like, it's it's a truly, truly brilliant screenplay. So many factors behind it are work far better than than they should on paper. Um, I'm so glad that Greta Gerwig and, and, and Margot Robbie is a producer fought for. Uh, their vision understood the value of their vision and ultimately were able to to make the the movie that was their vision because obviously uh, people responded i also am really happy so far to hear margot say things like there's no sequel idea i kind of like, hope there isn't like you can't control this what like you know it, if warner brothers wants to make barbie 2 they can make barbie 2 but sure for, but if margot greta and ryan all step out and say yeah we're not going to be involved then i feel like that's them saying our Barbie is its own thing and whatever. Yeah. Even if even if they slap a two on it, it's not really, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's like Jaws 2. It's not really, it's not yeah. really Jaws 2. Yeah, except Jaws 2 is great. Just put that on the box, Barbie. It's like Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Hamilton. What, what was the Jaws movie where they were like in a museum and there was the water above them and then the sharks break that through? Was three. Oh, like when they see, that when was they're in SeaWorld. That's yeah, a really scary scene. That's, what, that's, that's, scene. that's 3D, right? It's yeah. 3D, yeah. That's it's once, really once, once the sharks really start like coming after, like coming back for revenge, that's yeah. that's when they lost me. It's pretty bad. <laughs> that's that's the name of, isn't that the name? That's the name of that one, right? 
Jaws the Revenge. Jaws the Revenge. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. No, wait, that's four. That's four. Jaws 3 no, is just I Jaws 3 I always love the, the Michael Caine quote when someone asked, did you ever see Jaws 4? And he said, no, but I saw the house that it built. Yes, good for I'd him. Jaws great, great quote. Oh, yeah, I would do Jaws 4 for a beach house. I'd do it tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> if they wanted to pay me. Uh, all right, Kev, you're number five, which we are discussing at length. We are. Yeah? We are. Oh, that's we right. Are. This is on your list, right, Sean? Yes. Uh, all right, so uh, mine is, uh, number five is David Fincher's The Killer. Oh! Um, uh, just a, re- a remarkable <laughs> film. It, it's 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 incredibly underrated in my opinion. I say underrated because this year is so stacked that a David Fincher movie has come and gone, and people aren't talking about it, and it's really are, sad Kef. to me. So let us sing for for uh, <laughs> for Fincher here. Um, I mean, where do I even begin? The editing on this film, the sound design on this film. Uh, Fastbender's performance, Fastbender's mm. voiceover. Shout out to Josh Horowitz. Uh, Sean brought this up, who did an interview that said that Fastbender recorded the narration like laying down. That's exactly what it sounds like. With um, cue cards. They yeah. held up cue cards over him. I and, love that. You know, I, I find I've been saying this. And I don't know if people think I'm crazy for saying it, but it just, it, I feel this film is a weird, almost sibling of Fight Club. Um, and there's just a vibe to this movie that feels like Fight Club. It could be the narration. It could be just the, the, the pacing of it. It's the narration for me, but also there's so many shots of Fassbender on a plane in glasses. It just reminded me of Tyler Durden. Um, and I just feel like Tyler Durden, if he'd shown up in this movie, it wouldn't have surprised me. Um, and I think that this is a remarkable film just from a filmmaking standpoint but also it's a it's a story we've seen before but so is john wick and so is so many other films that we've seen like it's 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 you know it's a guy dealing with a revenge aspect after something wrong happens to him i mean it's, we've seen it a zillion times um but at the same time we haven't seen it through fincher's eyes and the mm. way fincher directs this film his voice is there it, it it's when i watch this movie i just think to myself like this guy knows Every little detail of every single thing he's doing, it's all in sync. The Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor score is, is just incredible. Um, there's a fight scene that takes place in Florida uh, with him and this guy that's like in this dark room that, that has some of the best sound design I've heard in a long time. And Sean and I discussed this, too. This movie's really funny at times. Like, it's a, it's weirdly funny, like a dark comedy in a way. Um, I just think that, it, and I saw someone say this recently, it's a really interesting um, commentary on corporate America as well, or corporate corporations. Um, there's a lot going on in this movie that I think is so subtle and nuanced. And when I put it on again, I, oh, last thing I'll say about it, and then we'll get to Sean. Opening credits. I got to say how cool that is. He gives you this, like, 30-second quick massively rushed opening credits. And then you sit for 20 minutes with this guy as he tries to take a shot that he misses. And that begins, begins the story. It's just so cool. Like Fincher is just messing with us. And that's why I love it. He's so, awesome. I told you guys in the text that the PJ wanted to watch Zodiac recently. So we oh, put gosh. it on. And the one thing that, that stood out to me was how subtle the Zodiac opening credits are. If you guys haven't seen mm. them in a little while, it's basically just typeface. And maybe it's yeah. because it's like driven by the San Francisco Chronicle, but it really it's they're very small, very it's subdued. not his like over the top, like chemical brothers, like right. in your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, Kev, I'm with you. This is a hilarious movie. Um, <laughs> Sean, what just, number was it for you again? It is the killer's number seven for me Perfect. and number five for, for Kevin. Um, 
and and Kevin, I'm going to echo what you said, which is, yes, it tells a story that we've seen many times before. And to the point where as he's marching through the list of people that he needs to get to and go up the chain of command, um, you know that he's eventually going to have a confrontation with fill in the blank. And then. But when you get to those moments, they're so delicious um, <laughs> that I, I just relish being in them. Uh, the fight that you mentioned, you know, so one of them's physical. One of them's an over the top sort of bone crunching fight. The sit down face off over the dinner table with Tilda Swinton is, you know, a version of a confrontation that you've seen before, but it's done right. so well. I just came out of Rebel Moon and Rebel Moon is the kind of movie that you've seen a thousand times before. But when I got to each of the expected beats of Rebel Moon, they played mm. out in a boring and predictable way. And I thought that the killer did not do that. I thought when the killer got to the beats that it needed to hit, it brought Fincher's style and his humor. And I thought Fastbender was incredible for it. Yeah. I, it just, I just, I, I think it's incredible. And I think I mentioned this when we were reviewing it on the show. I think it's going to have the sort of staying power of one of his films like the game where yeah. when you mention it the people who have seen it are going to be like, oh, my God, I love that that movie so much. But it's just the fact that this dude has bangers like all time classics at the top mm. of his filmography. So when he gives you uh, a, a 95 out of 100, you yeah. know, you're like, all right, I'm going to gonna slide. I'll get out of here, Gabe. It's, like, it's great. No, I, 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 just think it's a, I just think it's a, like an 87. It's not. It's, I just don't. It's, you know. OK, it's so weird right. because out of Fincher's collection and then we'll get to Jake's number five. Like, I think I've said this before. I think Zodiac's the best movie he's ever made. Oh, I'll never so I'll never see it again, though. I, will never, I get that. I get the I effect it has on you, but you're you're doing yourself a disservice no, by not revisiting it. that. Movie. It's a five it's out of so five. Do you know, but do you know I how can't much watch uh, the beach scene? I cannot skip watch it. that. The scene. rest of it is brilliant. No, no, you can I skip know. it. It's the best movie he's made. And also because like the, the Zodiac Killer also sort of disappears after an hour. Right. And like you, you stop seeing the murders yeah. after like an hour into the movie. But I'll say this, like. Out of all of Fincher's movies, weirdly enough, The Killer is one of the ones I would watch over and over oh, again. Yeah. Well, because it's just, it, I mean, I think i think that actually... It's crazy. Well, that's kind of probably why Jake and I are... I think Jake likes it less than I do. I don't know, maybe we're similar. But that's probably where, like, that's where the turn happens, is it's a popcorn Fincher movie, which is better than most popcorn yeah, movies. Like, probably. done by but, a master. Sure, I sure like, but, I but like it's still, Fincher's you know, better than this. Like, he's see, better than... I, I don't think know that his, I go that far. I, I just think, think it's kind of... I think his brilliant really? filmmaking is all in there. I just think that people are. Uh, oh, I no, think it's, it's, still, little, it's, it's very well made. It's, it's is very Spielberg like, better than Ready Player One. Like that's I mean, I mean it's, I love Ready that's Player still Player popcorn. One. Well, the killer doesn't hit Ready Player One. Ready Player One's popcorn. top 10 Spielberg for me. Ready Player yeah. One's and, and, so if that gives Ready you a perspective. And again, don't Ready get me Player, wrong. Wait, wait, wait. Steven Spielberg directing The Shining is nothing like <laughs> David Fincher directing The Killer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe I reached a bit with that. Killer's in the moment. It's top five Fincher for me. I mean, and we'll do a Fincher breakdown at some point in our show. We can we'll do go. a Fincher tier list. And, yeah, and uh, that's a, that's Kev, a very, Kev would very have to rewatch doable. Zodiac. Kev would have to rewatch I, I do think if we did a Fincher tier list, we would all agree that Zodiac's his best movie. And I think that we'd all have that as we'll his S tier. Uh, it's his best movie. It it just is. It's Social amazing. Network is flawless. How do we do? Though, it's we flawless. Do. Well, we'll, yeah. talk about it. we'll talk about it. Yeah. Jake, uh, my number, number five. My number five is one that I'm assuming we're going to have to wait for. Okay. Uh, and it's uh, past lives. We have to wait for it. Yes. All right. So go to your number four. My number four is also probably another one that we're going to have to wait for. My number four is the holdovers. We Ooh. have to wait for it. Yes. <laughs> so Eventually, Kev. I'd like to talk about a movie on my list. <laughs> nah, Sean. You're fine. Uh, Kev, we're going to your number four, which we are discussing. 
We are discussing this. Yes. Okay, great. Um, well, the day we're recording this is the day this film is being released on streaming. Um, it's called Rebel Moon. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> technically, that Rebel Moon comes out Friday. We're recording Wednesday. Oh, fair um, enough. Okay. So Maestro does drop today. Uh, <sighs> yeah, I mean, Sean and I, Sean, I spoke pretty heavily on the killer. So I'm going to let you take Maestro and then I'll kind of back up with you. Um, I, I love this film. It's remarkable. I think Cooper is, is incredible, but I want you to start because you watched it uh, relatively recently and you were pretty floored by it. I would just so, like to say really quick, I have a feeling I am going to hate the official real blend top five this year. I, I think so. I, I feel I feel like there are a lot of movies because based on how the point system works, I feel like there are a lot of movies that Sean no, no, and Kevin no. have high. I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. All right. Kevin or right. Sean, Sean, you go ahead. But what, what was this for you? Maestro for me was number eight. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll bounce off you. You go first. But was definitely one of those titles that was f- um, flirting with being higher. And then I just the recency bias of it is like, do I honestly love this as much as I do? And I want to live with it for a little bit. Um, for whatever reason, it, I was just late to the game with this one. I, I had a chance to see it at a couple of different festivals. The schedule never worked out. And I honestly wasn't in a rush to see it. I don't really know a lot about Leonard Bernstein. I don't necessarily I, I wasn't obsessed with finding out his story. And all I've been hearing is how much Bradley Cooper is like sweating the Oscar, you know, and I I felt like this was going to be Oscar bait and and shame on me. I forgot that this is the dude who directed A Star is Born, which I love. And this to me reaches that level. Um, it's weird how thematically they are very similar. It's it's uh, still people who are driven by the creative process, who are self-destructive in their own lives and the people who they leave in their wake. Um, they I think Cooper is relatively fascinated with uh, asking big questions about how much is worth sacrificing uh, for one's art, because I feel like both Jackson Maine and Leonard Bernstein sacrificed a lot in their personal lives, but felt like Leonard Bernstein was way more comfortable with the sacrifices he was making. Um, and everything that he channeled through his life was associated with music. At one point, they kind of ask him on a talk show, like, what exactly do you do? What, how do you define yourself? Are you a composer? Or are you a musician? And he goes, I don't really think about any of the things. I just think that I, I, love music and all these things that I do is associated with music. I was listening to a great conversation on another podcast called The Big Picture Today, where the hosts were discussing Maestro, and they were trying to figure out whether the story was um, about Leonard or about um, Carrie Mulligan's character, uh, Felicia. And you know, the amount of screen time that she gets or the amount of scenes that she gets that Leonard is not necessarily in. And one point that I wanted to like scream back at the podcast is that the point that I took away from it is that you couldn't pull them apart. Like they're not they're individuals, but their love story made them inseparable, uh, even when that became untenable. Uh, And she had to give up so much in her life in order for his light to shine a little bit brighter. And and I didn't see it as his story over her story. I just think that in some times when when one of the two is a creative genius, you almost have to step aside. And I think a little bit of that is addressed in Star is Born as well, too, because in that sense, it was Lady Gaga's character who was probably about to start outshining uh, Jackson Maine's character. And it was like, what kind of devastation is filtered through that outside of all of those big questions, which I'm still wrestling with and can't wait to dive back into. The performances of those two are is nothing short of remarkable. Um, it is OK, fine. It's capital A acting. But dear God, did I in 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 ways that I haven't in just about any other film this year, maybe Oppenheimer, where we get to that. 
I stopped seeing the actor. Like I had to in the in the performances, I had to stop and look closer and say, "Okay, yeah, that's Carrie Mulligan," because I knew it was the character. I knew it was Leonard, and I knew it was Felicia, and I was so engrossed in their story. And Cooper is just going for it. Like it's a great performance. It's a it's a remarkable performance of a person who I'm not familiar with again. So when you get to a point in the film where they start to show you real footage of Leonard Cohen, no Leonard Bernstein, sorry. Uh, it's it's jaw dropping like it's incredible and kevin i know is going to discuss this scene uh in a cathedral which is you get to see him conducting the orchestra uh, it's just it's one of those moments where i sat and i was just so mesmerized by what was happening um it, it feels like the type of movie that i shouldn't normally love i don't really love biopics uh, but i thought this was magnificent and it showed cooper's extreme talent uh, as a filmmaker and i will not necessarily sleep on him anymore when you got to the end of the film it comes up and it's very striking it says executive producer martin scorsese executive producer bradley cooper executive producer steven spielberg and i was like well well shit all right (laughs) then that's i guess you're doing okay for yourself bradley cooper and kudos to you for this this tremendous tremendous film so to your point about uh who the film is mostly about i genuinely believe that the maestro that the movie is about is really Felicia. It's Carrie Mulligan's performance. And I think uh, I won't go into spoilers, but there's a uh, one of the final shots of the film, or if not the final shot of the film, I think is what says that Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what you're saying about watching these performances, like I rewatched the cathedral sequence this morning. And as, as we're we're mentioning, this is out on Netflix as of today, Um, but we're recording this on Wednesday, the 20th. So by the time you hear it on the 22nd, it will already be on Netflix. Um, But I was watching the cathedral sequence this morning and I could not believe that I was watching Bradley Cooper. I thought I was watching real footage uh, of, you know, and, and it really is a remarkable achievement. And I think Cooper becomes Leonard. I think Carrie becomes Felicia. It's a really, really powerful story that I don't necessarily think falls into the biopic category. We're generally dealing with a certain period of time in his life. It, it is going over years and years, but it's not like a birth to death story. And, I, you know, one thing that Jake said in our text thread, which I'm sure he'll bring up, is the idea that, you know, when you're watching this film, he felt like he didn't walk away understanding really the genius of his musicality. And I, I disagree because I think it was really the relationship between Felicia and Leonard that created the genius that we see in the film. Um, I, I love this film. I, I, I really hope people seek it out. I think Cooper is an extraordinary filmmaker, one of the best actors working today. I would love to see him uh, win for this, but we can discuss it later on as we get to our Oscar predictions. Um, but yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite films of the year. And uh, yeah, I hope people see this film. It's it's really beautiful. And for people who don't know who I'm referring to, uh, Leonard was was also, you know, we'll, we'll dive in more later. We'll, we'll get into that story. Really this is kind of acting as our review for maestro which is as kevin said is opening on netflix the day that we are recording it's been playing in in select theaters leading up to this obviously it's a big push for netflix on the awards campaign jake you are less than enthusiastic about this title than we are do you just want to kind of balance our our passion for it and explain why it didn't connect with you yeah you know it's funny I, i saw the film um early October at the uh, the premiere at the New York Film Festival. And even then, remember thinking, like, I don't love this. Like, I feel mm. like I'm, I'm being told that I should, but I don't. 
Um, and so we got the screener and I kind of thought, you know, again, like, like I said, you know, with Barbie, sometimes you got to just watch something through a different prism. So I put it, put the screener in to try to give another shot. And I liked it even less, if I'm being yeah. honest with you, it's it, it, the, 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 I was the best way I can describe how I see this movie, how I, how it's presented to me is when they make movies about movies and they try to like encapsulate what a quote unquote Oscar movie is. This is sort of the fake movie that they would be playing in the background to okay. sort of show what a like, oh, look, look at look at this year's Oscar contenders. And then and, and something like Maestro is what yeah. would be playing on the TV. Um, I got to be honest with you. You use every, everything. And I don't, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but so many things that you guys said, I felt the complete opposite. Like you said that. You, you know, Bradley Cooper and, and Carrie disappear. To me, I felt like I just kept seeing them almost look me in the eyes and go, look how good we're acting. Look at our acting right now. We are, like you said, I almost felt like they were looking at me and going, we are acting with a capital A. Like yeah. it just felt just like, OK, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. Wow. Um, Bernstein story. You know, I, I, I didn't feel like I walked away with any kind of an understanding of what it was that truly made him great. Mm. I felt like when the movie started, it basically starts with he's he, what he's he gets he gets a, a, an opportunity to do something really great. And he's like running late for it. and He's got to go. I feel like the, yeah. when the movie starts, it's basically saying, listen, Leonard Bernstein was fantastic at what he does. Trust us. OK, let's go. And mm. I walked away feeling like, like, OK, but why? Well, like I felt like it's it's two hours of people responding to how great he is. But I didn't feel like I walked away. And you're talking to someone who I had a star is born as number one for on my top 10 the year it came out. So I, I think mm. Bradley Cooper is a phenomenal director. But I just thought so many choices he made here uh, that a lot of people made here in this film were just capital P, but pretentious. OK, fine. It's uh, it's. it's so it's not okay. on my top 10 list is what I'm saying. So we're not going to have this later. We're not, this no, we're is, not having this, this later. Yeah, my glad we got, glad we got it out now. <laughs> All right, fine. Okay, so my number four. Now we're up, to, uh, we're up to my number four in the snake draft. I'll get to go four and I will get to go three. And uh, we are going to be talking about both of them because we're getting into the rarefied air. And here's where I started to get a little, a little spicy. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> number four, I went with no one will save you. Oh, uh, wow. Ryan Duffield. Yeah. This is a tremendous year for genre cinema. Um, we'll get to honorable mentions, but they were movies that I really wanted to get in there, like Polite Society, which I thought was outstanding. Uh, totally Killer, which I really, really loved. Um, and I could not knock No One Will Save You uh, out of my list because for 90 minutes, that thing held me in an iron tight grip um and it's largely silent and it's largely dependent on caitlin deaver being as incredible as she is um and there are shots in there that remind me of 80s level spielberg firing on all cylinders um it just i i had no clue where it was going it's the kind of tight 90 genre movie where you think like it's not going to have the budget or the imagination to really soar. But eventually where she goes in the third act, it goes to places I really didn't expect. And it kind of outreaches its own grasp. Everything about it's tremendous. Um, I will go back and rewatch. No one will save you multiple times. I know that I can recommend it to just about anybody and they'll get something out of it. 
Uh, and I don't think Caitlin Deaver is getting enough respect for the performance that she gave because it's a genre film and people don't, you know, then they wouldn't rank that necessarily in some of the top performances. But I think what she did in that film with next to no help from, you know, supporting cast or anything, she's essentially uh, on her own in a house uh, holding everyone's attention and keeping that story spinning. Uh, no one will save you is in my number four slot. Uh, at number three, that's a cool pick too. That's a cool pick. And the snake. Thank you very much. And uh, at number three, talk to me. Yes. Good. Good lord. It is so hard to make an original horror movie, um, because everything is Scream Eleven and uh, you know regurgitating franchises that we know or bringing back stuff that's just overly familiar. But this simple concept of, you know, the kids who get around and essentially do a seance kind of thing, but it's got this really disturbing hand with a ton of writing all over it was just like a freight train, you know, at the at the cinemas. Um, the Gabe, can you look up the main actress's name? It's Sophie, Sophie something. She's remarkable Um, as a really tough performance for her to hold down. Uh, if you don't know about talk to me yet, it's essentially this hand that's getting passed around from person to person. You um, hold it by the hand. It's almost like a handshake kind of thing. And you say, talk to me. You ask it to talk to you. And then you're essentially shown a spirit. Sophie Wilde. Incredible performance. She's so great. Um, the two directors, uh, the brothers who did it, they're hilarious. Like just in, as individuals, I love them. Their passion for being filmmakers. Please through. Fantastic guests of the show go listen to them um yeah I, I had to put talk to me at number three because i was floored by it and even going back and, and revisiting it to see like how does it hold up it opens at that party scene where they have to kick down the door to get the guy out who's in it and then he walks out into the middle into the middle of the party and then i won't tell you what happens after that it, it's structured in such a great way it just grabs you by the lapels from the from the get-go and there are so many brutal scenes in this movie, um, including a brief snippet when it takes you inside the body, mind or spirit of a of a kid who is in a coma. Oh, oh my God. Uh, I, that's a scene I won't forget for a really, really long time. So, uh, yeah, talk to me as a top three film for me this year. It's it's fantastic. And it was Jake's number seven. Jakey, talk a little bit about. Yeah, your feelings uh, towards that. I mean, film. my my easily my favorite horror film of the year. Just hearing you talk about it is making me think maybe I should have put it higher. Um, I love this film, such a you know. And what what I love about this film is that it taps into a thing that we all experience. That I really hope the sequel doesn't take away, which is this idea of the urban legend. Like you know, every all of us growing up heard that story that they heard from their big brother who heard it from someone at school. And it's that scary thing that that has haunted everyone in your neighborhood. And in this case, it's this hand and everyone you talk to, it has, you know, everyone has a different story as to where this this hand came from or, or you know, whose hand it was and, and whatever the case may be. Um, I love that it never really fully answers what the story behind it is. And I know that they're doing talk to me um, <laughs> as the sequel. And I just really hope awesome. that they never explain where they, I don't want to know. I, I really don't. Yeah. Um, just some brilliant, brilliant sequences. Give us thoughts. The trilogy is going to be talk to three. Oh, yeah. 
well, well yes. done. Well done, sir. Sorry. Can um, I help? Yeah, yeah. But uh, just, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly simple premise. Yeah. But what they do with it is astounding. And these two guys who, who wrote and directed it, their brothers, uh, they're YouTube guys who are known for making like funny videos, which really sort of, I think, exemplifies this tie between horror and comedy. So often we see, uh, you know, like look, at, you know, look at Jordan Peele. We see these guys who have great comedy backgrounds making the jump to horror. And I really think there's an interesting tether there that I've never truly fully understood, but I feel like there's something there that's fascinating. And, and it, this probably is thinking about the films on my top 10 list and, and all the films out this year, probably my favorite final shot mm. of, of the year. Um, if you've seen it, you know, if you haven't seen it, you don't know, but just it's, it's, it goes, the, the film starts going in a direction where you kind of just start going, where is this going? Like I'm digging <laughs> this, but I remember thinking like, what, yeah. how, how are you going to, how are you going to land this plane? Yep. And then whenever you see how it is in fact landed, you go, Oh, you clever sons of bitches. In fact, it's great because they could have shown that at some point earlier, like, mm-hmm. cause you all think like, well, what do you see when, when yeah. that, and then you finally get to, yeah. And you go, you get oh, to that and you're like, and like, it's one of those things that like, it makes uh, so much sense. It almost makes you feel stupid for not realizing that's where it was going. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, good right. pick. Good pick. Uh, uh, Kevin, your number three, which we are discussing. We are discussing. We are. Yes. Ooh. Number, number three is, uh, Alexander Payne's the holdovers. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the holdovers for Jake was his number four. So you boys dive into, uh, the greatest or latest and greatest from Alexander Payne. Is it on your list, Sean? Honorable mentions. Ah. What? Wow. Yep. Um, this is, uh, I think this is Alexander Payne's best film. Um, I think that, uh, it's a it's such a comforting movie, even though it's dealing with such deep thematic material. Um, I also just loved how much of a slice of a life slice slice of life it feels right. Like you're just watching real people in real situations with real circumstances and how you how people can change each other's lives in uh, in a short period of time. And for people who aren't familiar with the film at all, like essentially the, the, the kids at the school are held over during the holidays if they have nowhere to go. And Paul Giamatti's character has to stay back and kind of watch the students. And then it ends up just being Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa's character and uh, Davine uh, Joy Randolph, who's remarkable in the movie. Um, I, I hope she wins the Academy Award for Supporting Actress. I mean, she is just incredible if you haven't seen the movie or the the party scene you'll know what i'm referring to when you see it uh giamatti is just this film had a really profound impact on me um i ended up reading this book called meditations i know that everyone knows what that book is but marcus aurelius's meditations um i had never read it um this film led me to read it and it's been pretty life-changing and profound in 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 some ways that uh, i won't go into here but it's a really um i love when a movie can can stay with me and, and affect my life on a daily on a daily basis dude i know um, nothing about that book what is even what is it even it's a very it? very very famous book um it deals with philosophy and deals with life and kind of how we our perspective i won't dive into it but it's, a, it's like an iconic book it's a book that okay. i had heard about for years just never read um i listened to the audiobook uh it took me like a couple weeks to get through it and, and it's mm. just incredibly life-changing um there's some lines in that book that i just I say a lot to myself and think about um, but what I love about this film outside of the performances. It, 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 there's just moments in this film that struck me in a very 
profound way. And um, I'll, I will I'll just give some kind of like cue words or some some words around it. Like there's this medication through line in the film that we that has a really interesting arc that was really profound to me. Um, I thought Giamatti, just everything, the way he delivers his dialogue, it's just a really special movie. Um, and I think Alexander Payne, even though he shot digitally, it looks like it was shot in that period of time. Uh, it's scored well. And Dominic Sessa, it's his first movie he's ever done. And the way he interacts and has dialogue with Giamatti is it's like this odd couple um, aspect and they're just so great playing off of each other and yeah I, I love this film I love it also has one of the best endings of any movie I've seen this year um, and all I will say is handshake versus a hug well go and listen to Alexander Payne on our show where he discusses the choice to do that so and and gets into like Kevin has said this before and it's so very true interviewing Alexander Payne is like is like having a conversation with one of his screenplays like yeah you, his voice comes through very clear in his writing and it, it absolutely comes from uh, it comes from him and comes across in his films. Jake, you saw this movie um, and, and texted us immediately. You were you were floored by it from the get go. Yeah, you know, and I, I've talked a lot about it on the show. I don't want to repeat myself, but basically it's just it's such a comfort movie for me. Um, you know, I talk about rewatchability on this list and and I could see this being uh, a, a movie in the vein of like an up in the air where it's just like it just it hits me this way now at 35 and then I rewatch it when I'm 45 or 55 mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I see a completely different movie because I start aging into, you know, further away from one of the characters and closer to another. Um it just everything about it just hit perfectly. And I, I'm pretty I'm pretty hit and miss with Alexander Payne. Like there, there are a lot of his movies that I, I love. I don't think I've ever as long as I've done top 10 list. I don't think I've ever put an Alexander Payne film on my top 10 list. OK, um, but this one just struck me and, and it didn't just strike me whenever I saw it. it I, I, I randomly found myself not being able to stop thinking about it. Like mm. I remember walking out of the theater going like, oh, I love that. That was really great. But then there was something like a week and a half later. Where I thought like. I need to get the screener of that because I need to watch that again immediately. Okay. Um, and uh, it's just like there's so many little small things about that movie that I love. And just like the physicality and that clip that I now see circulating on social media is Paul Giamatti's effort to throw a football. <laughs> and, and this is what I'm about to say is going to, to anger you guys so much. Yeah. But I found more acting and the physicality of his attempt at throwing that football <laughs> than anything Bradley Cooper did in Maestro. <laughs> no, that's fine. I that's get a true it. story. I, I, I am not going to say anything bad about Giamatti <laughs> because he is. And I mean, you can't overpraise Giamatti. You can't. Like, I mean, should, can we start talking like talking about him as a not a like, oh, he's a really solid third place, but an actual best actor can like like our, our, what, I, what I'm imagining is the scenario where Cooper and Killian split and then and then Giamatti rides through. So I don't I think a, a, a there's a hair thin separation between those three those three performances. I think so, too. Killian Murphy. Uh, Bradley Cooper and Paul Giamatti. I, yeah. I could see any of those yeah. three winning and I would yeah. be content. Kevin, uh, what do you I think? Mean, I, I think they're phenomenal. I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, the, we discussed this in the show before, but like Cooper has what, like nine nominations and, yeah. in different aspects Killian's of won more best actor awards this season in terms of all the critics lists so far. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. The right Which now, I think it's, always between, something. It's, it's between those three for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Jake, we're up to your number three, sir. Uh, and I'm assuming we're going to be able to talk about it. Um, my number three is Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, yes. Rewatched re- it, re- it last night. And je- Jesus, it's just an astonishing achievement uh, in filmmaking and storytelling. It's just and you know, what's so funny is that it's Kevin's number six. So I want Kevin to be able to weigh in on this as well. I, I even more so watching it. We talk a lot about sometimes the second experience of, of watching a film is better because you go into it knowing already what it is and, and not, you're not trying to figure out where it's going or what the next step is. You're able to, you, you've already had time to reflect on it and you're able to jump back into the pool already knowing what the temperature is. And I felt like I was able to do that last night when I rewatched this film and just, I, I loved it even more. It gave me such a greater appreciation. Like, like I, I even wonder if like, you know, 10 years from now, if I'm going to look back and go, man, should I have put that as my number one? Like, I just, I love everything about it. I, I don't think it, I do not think it feels three and a half hours long. I think it flows so fast. You know, I, I watched, you know, I granted, I started it very late with my girlfriend and, uh, and, and by the time we were able to turn it on and I wake up at 4am to go to work. So like, let's say I was able to get an hour and a half in before passing out. But uh, rewatched it, uh, the, the rest of it, uh, at, like sort of at work this morning to kind of get ready for the top 10 today and just everything about it. It's just masterful. Like, I mean, like for every and I know we're going to talk about Oppenheimer in a second for every award where I go like, yeah, Oppenheimer's got that. I look at killers and go, but, you know, killers kind of deserves it, too. You know, like Killer, there's a lot killers of, getting a lot of regional critics and, and of, national know, critics is going is yeah, going best picture. Every, every time I think of like, yeah, Oppenheimer for cinematography. But then there's a pause and I go, but. Damn that killers of the flower moons and like just the shot alone of the Osage tribe dancing as the oil pours down on them like just uh, it's just a beautiful beautiful film and 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 the fact that like Martin Scorsese is at this point in his career mm. turning out I mean and, that, and that's the kind of film that he could only make it like I, I I don't I don't know if Scor the Scorsese who just made Taxi Driver or just made Raging Bull could make no. something like Killers of the Flower Moon. No. That, that is the result of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time learning and becoming one of the great. That is, that is the result of him becoming one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, a film of that quality and, 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 and th- that well made. Well, it's the it's it's lessons of of living, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he's commenting yeah. massive things yeah. about about mankind yeah and you know? the fact that like i mean we're talking about a filmmaker who has been criticized such a huge portion of his career for glorifying violence and glorifying gangsters which one tells me that you're not actually really watching those movies so i feel like he is spending these past few years of his career you look at irishman you look at killers yeah. going really mm-hmm. you think that's what i've been saying this whole time well fine yeah. fuck it here take these movies and now you tell me that's what i'm saying so well, and oh, also I love it. also silence the silence i <laughs> And I don't mean to bring that up as an inside joke between us, but uh, silence is very much a reflection on on people who do bad sure. things and then have to repent for them. So sure. Kev, Kev Flowers was a six for you. Um, yeah, we've we've been pra- singing its praise since we saw it. Uh, you guys, you guys like it more than I do. It's it didn't make my top 10, but it's absolutely one of the one of the better films this year. Yeah, my second viewing is where I realized it was going to be my top 10 because I, I, I really liked it the first time I saw it. Um, but then the second viewing, it just everything kind of comes together. It flows differently. The pacing's differently. Um, uh, well, a few things I want to mention. Rodrigo Prieto, Havasu, uh, shot Barbie. Uh, my Probably my favorite shot of the year. Uh, there's like this fire silhouette shot 
um, that kind of reminded me of Raiders a little bit where uh, it's a silhouette. I mean, in Raiders, it's not fire, but it, it, it's more shadowy. But it, it, I just love the way the film was designed. Um, I do want to shout out Robbie Robertson's score. Oh, um, God, it's so good. Because uh, I want to say he, that he passed this year. Right. And yes. and, and uh, an incredible musician. Um, and there's a beautiful tone to this film in terms of the music, the way Scorsese uses music in this film. But the ultimate thing that really got me was this. I, I felt like it was a heartbeat. I don't know if it was drums or a bass, um, but it was like this. I found it to be the heartbeat of the Osage. And kind of as the film progresses, it's like you're it's just so such a devastating story. And there's just something about that sound as we enter scenes that was really immersive and very emotional. Um I said this in the show before, but Lily Gladstone's performance uh, and I love Emma Stone and poor things, but I would love to see Lily win. Um, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of Lily's performance in this film relies on these moments where after she loses somebody close to her multiple times, Scorsese just cuts to her and the weight of emotion that is on her face as she's carrying all these deaths with her is incredible to watch from a performance perspective devastating emotionally but i think the scene that's in the trailer that everyone knows where she's at the bottom of the staircase and she breaks down Mm. it's there's just so much to that moment like outside of the trailer and in the trailer it hits differently but outside of the trailer when you watch it in the film it's the build-up to that moment and what that scene means I think it's one of DiCaprio's best performances of his career. Um, I think Hollywood and this are like top tier DiCaprio performances. He's unrecognizable in this role. The the way his mouth sat, it was such Mm. a wicked look. Um, And and like his brow, the way he he transformed his face. Yeah. And I would love to know how they did that. I don't know if there was prosthetics or whatever, but De Niro, one of the most vicious and disturbing individuals I've seen put to film. That character is so evil. And, and I'm watching the film and, and he's just, it's so crazy to watch that performance. He's so great in it. And he's such mm. a, uh, an amazing actor. And I just want to point out the ending. I love the way the film ends. I love mm. the shots at the end, but also the way that stage play, uh, that radio broadcast uh, is being done. And Scorsese obviously being a part of that. So I, it's a remarkable film. And Robert, mm. shout out to Robert Robertson. Rest in peace. Uh, your music lives on and hopefully in these conversations as well. Jake, we are at your number two. Um, and here's where things are going to get a little spicy. Because there's a big behemoth uh, that's waiting out there. We're all down to our last two picks. Um, but I see a couple of holds and a couple of goes here. So here's where things are going to get interesting. Jake, give us your number two. Um, well, give me your number two first. I'm, I'm, I'm going to predict it's a hold. Uh, my number two is Spider Man. Uh, what is it? Across the Spider Verse. Oh, I, I forget what the, is it? I mix up the in, like into across and beyond. What the next one's going to be beyond? Yeah, 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 yeah. Across the Spider Verse. You, you mean you mean the other half of Across the Spider Verse? Yeah, 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 that is a hold. That is a yeah. hold. Uh, Kevin, your number two. My number two is a little movie uh, that I saw back in May that had a profound impact on me that I have not stopped thinking about up until this date, December 20th. It's Celine Song's Past Lives. Wow. Um, All right. Hold on. And this Past is Lives was Jake's number five. Number five. Yeah. Uh, it did not make my top ten list. Um, um, but I, I have 
one of the things that um, that I've loved over the years is just learning is learning about every aspect of filmmaking possible. And I read a great book and I've mentioned this in the show before. If you have a chance, anybody out there listening to this, read Sidney Lumet's Making Movies. Mm. Um, it's a remarkable book about the decisions filmmakers make down to the lens choices, down to the way a camera operates, the way a score is done, the rehearsals, all these things. And when I watch a film like Past Lies, which is a first time feature filmmaker, I, I don't understand how a first time filmmaker makes this movie. I mean, it is it's done with the art and the and the and the uh, emotional aspect and also the talent of filmmakers that I've seen 20, 30 years into their careers. Um, there's a way that Celine uses the camera in this movie as a narrative tool to make you feel the longing that these characters feel. And I'm going to, I'm going to use her words because I remember the day I interviewed Celine song for this film, I had just watched it. And I, I remember getting on the zoom and I didn't even really have a question formulated. I just wanted to explain to her what just happened to me as I was watching her movie. And for people who aren't aware, it's about two characters who are childhood best friends and years and years later, um, at, at childhood, actually, uh, Greta Lee's character, the younger version of her character, moves to the United States and is there for years. It gets married and is in a you know good relationship. And then this childhood friend of hers comes back into her life and comes to New York to see her. And there's a scene where they're first meeting for the first time in all these years. And the way Celine shoots that sequence is is in her, in her words is she's trying to make you feel the longing. So as we're watching the scene and we're on Teo Yu's character and he's talking to Greta Lee, we want to see Greta's reaction. But Celine is holding us on a shot mm. and vice versa. So the whole time I'm watching it like this, I'm like, get over to Greta, get over to Teo, because mm. The whole point of it is that you're supposed to feel that tension. You want them mm -hmm. to come on the screen at the same time together. And that's just a little detail. But the whole film is designed that way. Um, and last thing I'll say is this. Um, there's a, a really phenomenal scene towards the end of the film where Greta and Teo are at a bar and we're with Greta's husband. Uh, is it John Magaro? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Um, and the way she frames that sequence is she puts Greta and Teo in the same frame, leaving the husband out of the shot. Mm -hmm. And the brilliance of that moment is that, you know, the husband's there looming over this conversation. Mm -hmm. We don't need to see him. We know he's there. And there's just something beautiful about narrative choices made in camera and framing that are so subconscious to you as a viewer. Like you might not even know what you're thinking. Like, why am I going like this? It's because you're it's because you're so immersed in the story and she's tricking you. She's a, it's an illusion um, that these people are real, that these characters are somehow real. You believe that the characters are real and then you really feel the longing for their relationship. Well, you know, what I find and interesting the too. ending. Oh, my God. I, I, I can't tell you how great this film is if you haven't seen it. I think that movie works differently based on who you I think we all inherently do this, who you root for as a couple. Because mm. I ultimately wanted the childhood friends to figure out how they were going to be together. But that, um, that is the point, though. She wants you to feel that. That's the whole point sure, of the movie. But I don't doubt that plenty of other people are going to watch this movie and think that, you know, the mm. married couple should should be together. And, and who is this guy who's coming in and interfering? I think everyone's going to bring their own sort of perspective to it. And that's what I think is is, is really brilliant about it. Jakey, you take you're muted. muted. 
Jake, you're muted. Jake, you are, Jake, you are muted. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I really, I was number five on my list. I want to give a shout out to the actor, uh, John Magaro, who played the husband. And that is a role that I think could have been such a, I, I think he even calls it out in the film. He says, you know, in most movies, I would be like the villain of the story that most people root against. And he's right. Yeah. Like that, that we've seen. And, cause, and the reason he says that is because we've seen films portray that character before. When you, when in actuality, you think about it, you tell the story from his perspective. He is a husband who is married to a woman. And all of a sudden this guy who he doesn't, doesn't really know who this person is shows up in his life. And all of a sudden he has to watch his wife kind of start having these feelings that he didn't ever know that she really had for this guy. And the way he, he handles it, I feel like is one of the most, I, I, I don't think I could have handled it as well as he did. And that's such a beautiful performance. And, you know, I know supporting actor is absolutely stacked this year. I, I wish we had room for his name to be in consideration because that is a character that was given a a third dimension, not just because of, of the brilliant uh, uh, writing, but also just because of his performance. But, you know, I I feel like this is a movie that uh, more so than any movie this year, you know, a, a great we always talk about like a great movie sort of makes you know, the actors disappear so you don't see them anymore. But I feel like there are some movies that where the, the characters disappear and you kind of put yourself in that scenario because every person to some degree, some more than others, and some people don't even want to admit sort of have that person in their life where not that they maybe regret or that they, you know, are, you know, feel however they feel about their own, you know, current life situation, but they sort of wonder what, what would it have been with that? And mm-hmm. the way I feel like that movie is cracking open the souls of people who watch it and making them not just examine the characters on screen, but also examine themselves. I feel like is the, uh, the power of, uh, of that movie. I left past lives wondering how many of my exes just look for me on Facebook. Um, I assume all, all of them, all of them. Mm-hmm. And I all assume on a, on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get to the, uh, to my top, my number two, which will then lead us into our number ones. Kev looks a little worried. No, I'm, not, I'm actually very I've been sitting here the whole time, like learning y'all's lists. And I'm just so happy that I do this show with you guys, because it reminded me how much I loved Asteroid City, how much I love Talk to Me. <gasps> and there's a lot of great films that came out this year. Um, it's just cool to have a collective thought process about all this stuff. So I'm going to do my number. I'm going to mention my number two. And then, Gabe, I'm going to reread my 10 through through one, essentially. Okay, my number two is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, Mm. a film that we will hold for the number one slot. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Overrated. You really should. You should throw it on tonight. I heard it's great. Uh, I'll send it to you. Here's my 10 through (laughs) one. Uh, (laughs) The book is amazing, actually. (laughs) I like like the original version of the film. I want to peel it, sir. (laughs) Number 10, uh, You Hurt My Feelings. This is Sean's top 10 list for 2023. Number 10, You Hurt My Feelings. Number 9, Poor Things. Number 8, Maestro. Number 7, The Killer. Number 6, Asteroid City. Number 5, Barbie. Number 4, No One Will Save You. Number 3, Talk to Me. Number 2, Oppenheimer. And number 1, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This really just comes down to the fact that it's a character who means the world to me. Uh, They are, Oppenheimer and Spider-Verse to me, have been 1A and 1B from the moment I've seen each of them. Uh, They're both remarkable, remarkable films. Um, But, and this goes a little bit back to the this and that, 
if if five years from now you tell me that I didn't put across the Spider Verse at number one, I just I'll kick my own ass um, <laughs> because it just so happens that the character who I have grown up with, who has been you know integral to the fiber of who I am as a person, is getting some of the most creative, inventive, genre pushing films uh, currently. You know, in in the superhero market, um, and it, to take the concept of anyone can wear the mask, which was so important to the first movie, which brought Miles' story around to, to then expand that, to show us in the third act that, that there's almost everyone can wear the mask and how many different versions of Spider-Man can exist in these multiple uh, multiverses. And the, the, the concept of Canon events and the, the visualization of all of the uncle Ben's and all the different multiverses dying um, and Spider-Man being too late to save them. They're, they're defining moments. They're the elements that uh, of all of our stories that make us who we are. And I just think the guys who are telling the Spider-Verse stories are firing on, on every cylinder possible. We discussed in a number of these different films, how visually you could pause the movie at any given moment and, and you have a frameable uh, cell of animation uh, and and in Spider Verse, it's it's amplified tenfold. The concept of you know every time they jump to a different multiverse, it takes on a new visual personality, whether it be Mumbatton um, or Gwen's watercolor universe, or you know even just for a hot second, you go into a Lego world, um, which was you know behind the scenes designed by a teenager, which I think is incredible that the mm. animators for this entrusted the sequence to a teenager who is great at making these little Lego creations. Um, it's funny. It's heartbreaking. Um, Kevin is correct. It ends on a cliffhanger that you want to see resolved in um, in the third one. But and I'll go back to Rebel Moon again. Rebel Moon felt to me the way Kevin kind of feels about Across the Spider-Verse. Like when that movie came to its conclusion, I was like, well, that's half a movie. Like I legitimately just watched half of a film. Um, I don't feel that way about Across the Spider-Verse. I feel like it has enough of an arc um, but yet uh, a, a continuation into where I cannot wait to see where it goes. I also love the fact that they did not forget about Miles's family and his relationship with his mother and father are still extremely important to the narrative that they are telling here, as well as expanding Dude, the best scene, the stuff with Gwen and, and her father. I'm sorry. Best scene in the movie is when he's about to leave his mom and, and his mom gives him that pep talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, their relationship scene. is, is significant. So uh, my number one, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, which brings us to, well, that was Kevin's... Jake's number two, Jake's number two as well. Oh, sorry, yes. Jakey. Please. Yeah. yeah, I mean, very, very similar to to what Sean was saying. Like, look, when the movie originally came out on, on video on demand, um, I, I think I even texted the guys and went like, this has got to be my number one. Right. This has got to be this has got to be my number one. Um, you know, on a Wednesday, it's my number one on a Thursday. It's, you know, the movie that actually is my number one. You know, it's it, it's it's arbitrary. You know, it's so funny. I, I spent the beginning of this video talking about like how easy one through five is. But like this is actually one of my toughest one and twos in recent mm -hmm. memory because mm -hmm. like you said it sort of feels like both are one and then i started three uh i i love everything about this movie i do think it's my favorite spider-man movie that's ever been made um i'm quoted as having uh, as believing that uh <laughs> it's just it's it's a beautiful genuine and i know this is such a, a as sean would call it a pretentious film critic thing to say uh, but it really is a piece of art um, mm -hmm. you know, every, every frame of it is just absolutely stunning. And, and unlike any other animated film I've ever seen in my entire life, um, the emotions are there. The, 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 the performances are there. Um, the technology is there. The, the, the storytelling is there. The script is, is brilliant. Um, you know, I, I don't think of it as, uh, 
I, I'm sort of split the difference. I don't necessarily think of it as like a full blown complete movie. Uh, so don't think of it as like one of two. I, I consider this chapter two of three, mm. um, you know, in, in the same way that like, the, you know, the moment that ends part one is very much embedded and important part of part two. Um, and so I have, I have a feeling where part two ends, we're going to pick right up with part three. So I consider this, you know, the almost like the, the two towers of, uh, of I was going to go know, back trilogy. to the future too, but yeah, but two towers, mm. it's I yeah. guess fair. I guess so, uh, well, well, yeah, I was, I was, the reason I would say two towers is like, this feels like one, two and three back to the future feels like back to the future. And then two movies split or, you know, and then, and then, you know, two and three. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a beautiful stone cold masterpiece of, of animation, of superhero, of just cinematic storytelling in general. And any other year, look, talk to me in a week and I'm going to tell you it's my number one of the year. Uh, just by nature of when we're recording this, uh, episode, it's not. I mean, also, real quick on Spider Verse because it didn't make my top ten, but it's in my honorable mentions. Um, Daniel Pemberton's score mm. uh, is insane, and we had a great discussion with Pemberton on our show earlier this year, where we broke down the just the intricacies of his musical genius. Um, I love Spider Verse; it's definitely one of my favorite films of the year as well. I just don't have it on my top ten, um, but I echo everything you guys said about the emotions and the and the uh, and the uh, animation. Um, I just think that Pemberton's score needs to be talked about a little bit more in the discussions about that film. Let me do your recap uh, ten through ten through two, Kevin. Then you can deliver us your shock number one. <laughs> right. uh, at ten, you have the creator. At nine, you have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Number eight, you have Barbie. Seven is Poor Things. Six is Killers of the Flower Moon. Five is The Killer. Four is Maestro. Three is The Holdovers. Two is Past Lives. And your number one film of the year, Kevin McCarthy, is... Yeah, it's so I've actually been dreading this moment <laughs> in a weird way. And I'll, and I'll explain why, because I feel like everybody listens to our show is already expecting this to be my number one. <laughs> and I feel like there's no surprise. There's no shock factor to it. Um, uh, and I feel like people are like, oh, yeah, of course, Kevin's going to go with Oppenheimer. Before you even click on this, you probably already assume. Which is why you one. picked Dunkirk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I went ahead in time and chose Pool Man by Chris Pine as my number oh, one. No, God, I, no. Uh, <laughs> did that come out? That didn't no, come I out. think it's next year. No, um, I haven't okay, seen so it. So wait, before, don't get into I it because you and Jake are going to both do it. So let me read Jake's uh, 10 through one and then you both can tackle. Uh, I don't think I even said what mine was, but uh, it's Oppenheimer. I'm sorry. It's it's Oppenheimer. (laughs) Jake's, uh, your 10 through 1, which will lead us up to the Oppenheimer conversation. 10 is Air. 9 is Poor Things. 8 is Barbie. 7 is Talk to Me. 6 is John Wick. Chapter 4. 5 is Past Lives. 4 is Holdovers. 3 is Killers of the Flower Moon. 2 is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And Jake's number 1 as well. As my number two and Kevin's number one is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, please listen to Christopher Nolan on our show. We're very proud yeah. to have him on. Yeah, he was yeah. good. Uh, he was this movie amazing. is this movie's it's flawless. I mean, it's yeah. it, and not only is it flawless, it's it's impossible that it exists. Like as Nolan kind of said, he, he said he gave this quote the other day, which was pretty hilarious. Somebody asked him if he still believed in like the power of cinema and how are movies doing? And he's like, I just made a three hour movie about Robert, Robert Oppenheimer and half of it's in black and white. And it grossed, you know, nearly a billion dollars. I think movies are doing just fine. <laughs> um, but when you think about that would what be he such just a pretentious said, quote, if he weren't right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. When you think about what he just said in that, he delivered a three hour movie that's rooted in R you know, rated. 
nuclear physics. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not even like not even about a bomb. It's talking about a bomb. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and it's it's about as riveting as anything you'll ever see. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the films that I tried to fit in or that I did fit in was uh, distributed by Neon and it was called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And it's not dissimilar to this because it's about a group of uh, radicals who want to blow up a pipeline in a corporation that's, you know, essentially polluting their air. And it's it's will they or won't they? And what are the what's the morality of the thing that they're doing? Surface level, that's a little bit what Oppenheimer's going through. But the way that Nolan focuses it on the theory of it all and these huge brains working on the Manhattan Project who are obsessed with. Can they just make it happen, you know, because they're they're faced with this problem and that's that's what they love doing. They love analyzing a problem that it's only when they get so far along in their process that they realize, oh, wait, now we're turning this over to the world and it's going to go from the page where we're analyzing these formulas to a reality Um and and it's almost like once they've started down that track, they can't stop it. And when that reality hits in Oppenheimer, to me, it's it's devastating, which makes, you know, the the final confrontation between him and, and Albert Einstein to be still one of the most haunting scenes known to mankind. But and look, you guys know I like Nolan a lot. And a lot of times I think he gets he gets over his skis a few times. But the way that he what calculates phrase from <laughs> felt like a very genuine question. Phrase. Genuine well, question. I think he gets a little bit over his skiing. Uh-huh. It was like an inception joke or something because it's a skiing sequence. Uh, <laughs> I knew Jay Robert Oppenheimer <laughs> and you, sir. Uh, settle down, Daenerys. Uh, I, it's just it's a remarkable screenplay. It's it's a remarkable screenplay that fits together so beautifully. Um, uh, Jakey, we'll let Kevin go last on this one. So uh, so continue to weigh in on, on why Oppenheimer made it all the way to the top of your of your year enlist. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I've been sort of trying to find the perfect opportunity for my Oppenheimer rewatch because the, the first scenario of watching it was so unbelievably perfect. It was a part of we we're really among the first press to see it. Sean, Kevin, and I got to see it together in the absolute perfect theater in New York City, uh, which obviously ended up being followed by an incredible um, appearance of, of Christopher Nolan on the show. And so everything about the whole Oppenheimer situation uh, was so perfect that I felt like my follow up, my, my second rewatch, because I know I, I'm almost the opposite of Kevin. Kevin goes and and just re like rewatches it over and over and over and over. And I'm very much a like, OK, my rewatch has to be coupled with the absolute perfect experience that I had earlier this summer. And I couldn't find myself uh, a situation that that matched that in terms of what I wanted. Uh, that's a long way of saying that I just watched it for the second time the other night. And what I did was finally got a 4K TV, finally got a 4K player, finally got the 4K HDMI cord to hook them up. I've got this beautiful new sort of entertainment room basement that I'm that I'm here now, uh, poured myself a whiskey and said, OK, this is it. And with and, and, and also the beautiful thing was enough time had passed mm. that I don't want to say like I forgot the movie, but like there really was a lot of like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about this scene, even like <laughs> like the opening shot is ripples of water, the rain that very much look like the bombs that he's imagining might go off 
at mm-hmm. the end of the film. The opening of like the quote about Prometheus with the fire coming at the screen and mm-hmm. what at the time we didn't realize, but it's the sound of the crowd banging their feet or like so many little things in that second rewatch that went, Oh shit, that's genius. And I didn't even realize it was genius mm-hmm. the first time. Mm-hmm. It, it, I felt like the second time really made me realize just how, like I, I was overwhelmed by the experience of seeing it at that perfect what did Kevin again what's it what was the name of the theater we saw that in New York it was a 70 millimeter IMAX AMC Lincoln Square I mean the absolute if you were to ask Christopher Nolan what's the best way to see it he probably would have pointed to that theater where we were at and said there. we also that's, had yeah. David Keeley yes. who was on our show who was there who is the chief you know yeah. one of the big guys at IMAX he literally went up and that print was designed for yeah. that whole thing yeah yeah but here's the thing my second experience took away all of that. My, I didn't have that IMAX experience. My second experience wasn't followed up by a great interview with Christopher Nolan. You guys weren't there for my second experience. What was what only remained, the only constant was that movie. And somehow it got better the second time mm-hmm. because I was able to appreciate all of the little drops of genius, the little morsels like the breadcrumbs that I was following the entire time the first time and didn't even realize it. Um, it, it just overwhelmed me the second time how much I didn't how much I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, um, I just everything about it. And look, we've talked fairly uh, somewhat extensively about about this movie on this show. So I, I won't take up too much more time other than to say um, that the second, you know, it, when trying to decide what was my favorite film of the year? It, it, that, that, that's rewatch. Finally allowing myself to have that rewatch uh, on Oppenheimer sort of made me go, this is the kind of movie you put at number one. Mm. Kev, how I'm many views be, are you up to? <laughs> I've seen it 12 times. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be very brief here because there's no point in me reiterating everything I've already said about this film. Um, the reason why I love this film so much, the rewatchability of it is ridiculously amazing. Um, mm-hmm. There's something there's a musicality to this. And and as dark as this film really is, there's something about the way Nolan makes this film that makes me just want to enter that world and live with these characters and understand these massive moral dilemmas that are affecting the lives of everybody on this planet. And there's a few people that I want to mention that I don't think I've really discussed a ton over the time that I've talked about this film. Um, but a lot of actors in this film that I think deliver some of the best performances of the year. Uh, David Krumholtz, yeah. um, who I think is remarkable in this movie, Isidore Rabi. Um, that performance from him, there's a scene where he basically tells Oppenheimer to take off that ridiculous uniform or the, the term that he uses. And then we get to this incredible moment where Oppenheimer's like having this, he's picking up his pipe, he's putting his hat on, Ludwig scores blaring. And there's just something about the connectivity of each scene leading into the other. Um, we discussed a lot about the first person aspect of it, the color scenes being Oppie and the black and white being Strauss. Um, but if you get a chance, buy the screenplay on Amazon or wherever you get your books. It's so cool how Nolan wrote it. Like when you're reading the bomb sequence, the Trinity test, we're in we're in Oppie's mindset. We're in his thoughts. So the screenplay is written like I'm doing this, not Oppenheimer is doing this. Um, so what's wild about the script is that when you watch the film again after reading the script, every single note that Nolan gave in the script to Oppenheimer's perspective is coming across Killian's face. Um, and uh, there's a line in that film that I think is underrated and not and not talked about enough where 
Emily Blunt's character basically finds Oppenheimer out in the woods, essentially. This is after the death of Gene Tatlock. Um, and she basically says to him, you don't get to commit the sin and expect people to not, you know, essentially not, you know, you don't get to commit the sin and not deal with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm paraphrasing her, but that line is the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, like, it, and and it it's, it's, you know, he builds this thing or is, is part of building this thing that he eventually realizes at, at, with moral dilemma, the use of what this thing can do. And the idea of humanity having the ability to drop bombs that are on this scale and kill this many people. Um, And as I watch Oppenheimer, I'm reminded of that eight year old kid on the couch falling in love with movies and kind of thinking about the world of how a movie is made. But as a 39 year old, when I watch Oppenheimer, the weight of the world and that we live in based on the decisions that were made in Oppenheimer's story and then I think back to Terminator 2 and, I, and I'm not saying that Terminator 2 is, a, is, is science fiction. It's, it's not real. But Oppenheimer is based on a true story. But the implications and the ideas that Cameron was dealing with in that film are very interesting to think about the world we live in now with the nuclear weapons that are available. Um, and I think there's, there's just a weird tie that I feel like I think about that eight year old kid watching T2 not really understanding the depth and the, and the scariness of that Judgment Day aspect. Right. And fast forward to watching Oppenheimer all these years later and seeing the real life situation that produced the bombs and produced these weapons that are affecting our actual real lives. It's just very scary to me. Well, and I think we should life, be thinking about it a lot more. Real life is terrifying. And if you stopped yeah. long enough to think about <laughs> the constant threat that we live underneath, right. we'd all go, we'd all it's go mad. I, that, that's the reality of it was we would all go mad. And, right. uh, you know, that's why we have movies that distract us from from reality. And, yeah. and we get to do make believe for most of our lives. Yeah. Please, please, dear God. Uh, Gabe, we yes, have sir. a collective real blend top five. Uh, based on a point system that you're going to expl- explain now, maybe? You know what? I'm not even going to explain the point system. It makes Good. sense. I'll let you know Good. there's logic, and I used it, to heck and with here them, are the Gabe. results. Um, Real Blends, number five movie of the year, is Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm, I don't love that. Yeah. I do. <laughs> I think Sean's going to be the one that doesn't love our top five. Love that. I don't love that. At That's number fine. four, at number four, Real Blend's number four movie of the year is Past Lives. Love it. Okay. Love okay. It. It's cool. At number three, which was had a tie broken with Past Lives thanks to its honorable mention from Sean, we have The Holdovers at number yes. three. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm digging right. this top five so Me far. Me too. It's almost like my top five. <laughs> a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Real Blend's number two movie of the year is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. There we go. That's number there one. <laughs> and number one with a bullet the iron claw <laughs> oppenheimer oppenheimer is real blend's number one movie of the year well deserved well, too i'd like to point out that i spent this entire episode writing out our lists uh and then i just spilled my water all over, <laughs> well, um, my desk and it completely destroyed the list i can't you, i can't wait to get the isolated audio of that accident <laughs> you're, you're gonna hear shit can you just can you just blast that out on social media again? When we, when I, when we threw it to a break earlier, our ad is just going to be the the audio. Really I legitimately great. spent the entire episode writing out this list and then spilled my water all over it. So uh, now it's your guys' that's turn. That's what Sean means by ending the year with an exclamation mark. Oh yeah, we got to do honorable mentions. No, that's well, fine, uh, Kevin. Most of, them, most of them I think came up. 
I'll I'll mention I'll go through them real quick and then you can mention specifically one you I just wanted. have one I want to talk about. That's all. Um Jake, your honorable mentions were the color purple, Blackberry, and Napoleon, which those didn't come up at all. Nappy uh, D. Sean's honorable mentions did come up. He had the holdovers, uh, John Wick chapter four, and Totally Killer. Yes. Which I think all three of those kind of came up because you mentioned Totally Killer. And then, uh, Kev, yours were John Wick Chapter 4, uh, Across the Spider-Verse, and Gran Turismo. I assume Gran Turismo you wanted to mention quickly? Yes, it's on Netflix now. Um, it almost made my top ten. I loved this movie, and I was shocked how much I loved this movie. Um, it's an incredible true story, um, and I think Neil Blomkamp did a great job with it. The racing sequences are incredibly well made. Um, I just wanted to give a shout-out to that movie. I feel like it fell under the radar. I think David Harbour is excellent in that movie um it's on netflix it's really doing well on netflix and i think it's going to find a good audience there i've loved it and i really hope people seek it out i think blomkamp is a very talented storyteller we all love district nine um this is it's excellent it's actually really good not that this means anything but like pj just watched it the other day and i sat on the couch watching it with him he loved it it's awesome this will be the type of movie that he'll go back and revisit Dude, the scenes where like he's in his room racing and then they build the car around him. It's so cool. It's great. It's really, really great. Uh, All right. It's your guy's turn. Head down in the comments below uh, and let us know what your favorite movie of 2023 is. If you have a top five or even a top 10 list, drop it in the comments below as well. I want to mention that uh, I did a little shout out in the most recent newsletter and some people have been sending over their top picks. So keep those coming. I'm at Sean at cinemablend.com. If you want to email them to this, or of course you can put them in the comments down below uh, and chime in on, uh, on this week's episode, Gabe. Show update. If you, uh, if you didn't hear the hints at it earlier, but this is our last show of the year. Happy 2023. What a great year for movies. What a great year for the show. Um, if you are, if you're, if you're missing us next week, I would say go back and listen to all your favorite interviews from this year. There you we have go. A ton of them. <laughs> and while you're at it, send it to all your friends. Um, but thank you all at home for listening. Thank you all yes. for the support. Anyone new who's, who's listening to us for the first time for our top 10, I commend you for sticking around for two hours through someone's, uh, mm. through three top tens in the top five. Yeah. Uh, but we have a lot of fun. So hopefully you guys will stick with us through 2024, but thank you again for another awesome year. There you go. Yes. It's not going to get better than that. And hopefully yeah. we'll get Denis on the show in, in the new year. We gotta. For Dune part two. We already had him on for part one. Go back and find that. It's amazing. And Hans Zimmer. Hands. Yes. 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 Not show business. Can we get in person in his show studio friends. this time? With oh that show God. friend? What if we got to sit on the uh, interstellar couch Mm-mm. while we interviewed Stop. him? Sean, what would you do if you played a bass in Hans Zimmer's studio? Oh! And he's like, you know, what? I'm going to put you in the next Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be back in 2024 uh, with more weirdness like this. And uh, we miss you guys. Thank you so much for everything. We really appreciate your support, as the boys said. And uh, until next year. Dune 2. Dune, Dune, Dune 2. Dune 2, baby.